Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. We, we, we know of new methods of attack. Greetings and welcome back to another exciting installment of the Fifth Column Podcast. This is your almost weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle, the people that make it, and occasionally ourselves. Also, your leading source for misogyny. Oh, God. Uh, really? uh, Getting right into women it. Who we invite oh, on the program no. and treat oh, with come a great on. deal of decorum mm. and respect. Uh, you weren't even here. We, we, we acknowledge <laughs> their expertise. Matt we has challenged his head them on the desk. In polite and respectful fashion. Yeah, all right, keep and then going. occasionally, We'll have a conversation oh on our private God. Patreon where we'll respond to listener comment. It's really and while we are while we are sometimes oh very God. candid, we are also fair. And can, I don't think can you there's do the introduction then we can talk about, it. about that. And when I say I don't think so, I'm Camille Foster. I do various <laughs> things at a place called Freethink, and I am delighted to be with you today. I'm back in the building, back. I was looking for a metaphor. Just, I don't back know in the saddle? Is, but I'm here. Yeah, you're I'm here. here. I'm back from Hong Kong. I'm delighted to be here. I yeah. managed to get out of Hong Kong before the panic yeah. that has enveloped Hong Kong, which is not really related to the protest. Coronavirus. So we here. can, yeah, I brought it to contaminate all of you awesome. guys with. I was going to bring you Valentine's Day cookies, but it's about a week too early or yeah. two weeks. And I also thought, well, they may not want to eat anything from me because they'll think I have some sort of contagion. Did you take Adderall today? Of course. Okay. Yeah. All right. You're back on it. Oh, I'm so good. I didn't know you were back on it. Yeah. Yeah. No. Okay. Since the last, the last two times. Because you know you did the opening segment. Yeah. During the introduction. Yeah. You were going to talk about that. It's on like the rundown, and then you just did the whole thing, and oh. then you introduced yourself. Oh. And you're sweating. It's very effective. Yeah. And you look like, <laughs> like late, late Richard Pryor before he set himself on fire. Ooh. Yeah. Free base. Free base. Free base. Wow. Wow. So yeah, Matt's here. Matt. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've, you you derailed me. Matt Welch, editor-at-large of Reason Magazine, in the building, doing his thing. Yeah. This, How this, are you, Matt? This is the episode. This, this is the this one. This is the one. This is the one. It had to happen. We had a good run. This is the time. This right now. Now is the time, right? When the seas begin to roll back and we begin to heal ourselves. Anthony Fisher. I've accepted it. Anthony Fisher, who is... I, what do you do over at Insider? I'm a columnist. You're a columnist, yeah. but you're a columnist of a particular sort. You I'm a columnist. Some, I do political columns. Political columns. Yeah. Oh. Okay. Now, that would be why you're following around Andrew Yang and Pete Buttigieg. Yeah. yeah. yeah I'm, I'm an invited guest on campaigns these days. Huh. Shocking. Isn't the thing with Adderall that you focus? Yeah. <laughs> it is. That's not happening. Well, I don't. I wanted to know what he did, and okay. now I do. Yeah, and now we can move on. He's been in the building a lot. So <laughs> how, how are you guys doing? Other you than didn't even exciting me. Twitter panic. That's how focused you are. Wait, me. I didn't? No. Oh, man. No. Michael Moynihan, of Vice yeah. News, yeah. is respected and I admired. Don't, I don't need an introduction. Also him. slimy. Yeah. He oh, is a yeah. creep. That's right. How yeah. are you guys? How are you guys? And I need you guys for a week <laughs> yeah. to just do the thing, yeah. run the show. Yeah. And I listen to the episode. Yeah. And then I land on the ground and I'm here and I jump on Twitter mm -hmm. and you guys are getting savaged. Yeah. It's a pogrom. Can I use that in no, this context? You can't. I can't. No, you definitely cannot. Because is it, um, no, we're, we're uh, criticized for, for a hot 18 hours on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, you know what By I By a saying? legion of blue check marks. Yeah. Uh, quite a bit of them. Uh, yeah. Quite a few. Uh, well, what I, did you guys do? Well, nothing. Why do you hate women? Literally, literally nothing. The funny thing about it is um, 
I've never been on the other end of one of those. Mm. And I just thought when it happened, it would be for something that I actually did wrong rather than <laughs> something that wasn't even remotely strange or weird. And if um, the quick background, because I don't want to spend too much time on this, is that mm-hmm. if you weren't following this utter stupidity, you you were saving yourself a lot of time and you probably have a real life and don't live in the fake bubble world that a lot of people involved in this thing do, is that uh, we had uh, Miriam Elder from BuzzFeed on the show. Um, and at one point, um, a lot of great things to say about Russia. Uh, well, Super I, you know, it's funny out. because you wouldn't know it because none of these assholes that were attacking us actually listened to the episode. No, no. Um, within about 15 minutes of her posting a Twitter thread, yeah. it had like 50,000 shares yeah. and a hundred blue check marks jumping in saying, I'm sorry this happened to you. Yeah, f- three hours of you content. You were so brave. Literally three hours of content. Cause we did an hour. Well, I'll get to that. But, but basically mm-hmm. what happened is that there was one point in the show they were talking about the Bernie uh, Elizabeth Warren controversy, mm-hmm. and I just thought it was a, a, a stupid, silly kind of fake uh, story that, that Bernie was sexist. I, don't, I didn't think Bernie was. And Miriam pushed back on that and then at one point said she thought all men were sexist rather than when I asked her if she thought Bernie was. She said, no, all men are. And I gave a little bit back. I, I, I pushed a little bit. And um, then we made a decision to... Uh, move on because we had a lot to talk about and that definitely would have taken up and at one point i said only if only camille was here because she said you know everyone's racist too and i said well you know let's let's keep going here um that did not sit well with our listeners and i kind of get why but um because as some as one correspondent said we talk about this stuff a lot why didn't you engage it it was kind of cowardly of you to not do so so when matt and i decided to record a patreon episode of the often do on Sunday night, um, we go to the mailbag. Um, and I think we do that almost every time. And so we went to the mailbag and guess what? The mailbag was stuffed full of criticism of us. <laughs> so we randomly took a few out and uh, responded to it. And one of the things that um, the, basically what we said was that, well, here's why we didn't talk about it at, at any great length. But if we had, I think this is probably what we would have said. Apparently that was wrong. Hmm. Um, I'm still not entirely sure why, but it it was talking behind somebody's back. Uh, you know, if she wanted to come to my apartment on Sunday night to do this Patreon only mailbag edition, I wasn't really thinking of that. And uh, Matt and I ended up, as we often do, just having a freewheeling discussion about it and reading um, people's emails about it. And, you know, in the jocular way that we tend to do, we had a couple of drinks in us too. And um, I don't think we said anything offensive because nobody quoted anything offensive, not a single tweet that said, oh, you said this and it was terrible. Although one person did quote something and, and somebody else on Twitter pointed out that they were quoting um, an email that we got and actually not something that I said. So a lot of journalistic rigor went in, in, into this pile on. So I'm not entirely sure, but in that, in that um, series of um, thousands of tweets, it seemed like uh, we were variously referred to as sexist and, um, you know, didn't want to be with the you know, debate a strong woman or I, I don't understand really. So at the end of it, I was, she sent me an email because she asked for the episode um, and I sent it to her. So um, I said, here you go. And when she wrote back, she said, you know, like Jesus Christ, this, you guys are cowards. It's funny because our listeners were calling us cowards. We're getting cowards on every side. And then she's <laughs> Camille's about to call us cowards. And then she said, and then, and then, and then she said, I'll see you on Twitter, which I thought was kind of funny because I didn't know what that meant. And I was about to find out. And I thought it was kind of funny because in, in the actual broadcast and before we started uh, the broadcast with Miriam, we were talking about how horrible Twitter mobs are. 
And at the end of the broadcast, um, she said, like, I know people are going to disagree with me. Um, I hope they're not mean. And mm-hmm. I said, and I said to her and I said to her, I said, don't anyone be mean to Miriam. She's a great journalist and we like her stuff and go read her stuff and her Russia stuff at the guardian and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, um, I guess that didn't apply to me. Um, because then, <laughs> then it was turned, uh, uh, the guns were turned on us. It was rather than say, you know, let's debate this or have me back on, or this is what I think was wrong. Um, she unleashed all of the people that I consider friends too, which was really disappointing. Um, that d- didn't, you know, I tweeted once about it. I didn't want to get involved, um, to a journalist where I, I just said, look, you know, we got criticized, uh, for not, not engaging in that debate. So we discussed it in the Patreon only podcast. And then we discussed what we probably would have said if we had, uh, engaged in it. And we discussed why we didn't engage it too, mm-hmm. which nobody which would have was, known because they didn't listen to it. Which is the point. And, it's so bizarre. And I'm, so bizarre. I'm I don't get super it. happy to not, uh, ever talk about this, uh, again. Me too. It's not very interesting. <laughs> um, uh, it's just like, it's not worth it. But, um, uh, the thing that I will defend more than anything is that, we attempted in a way that was self-reflective and critical to peel back the curtains a little bit about process, about how decisions that you make in real time, which is something that we do on this podcast, you know, talking about our media appearances when you're on, you know, this show and someone says this, how do you respond? Um, uh, it, it is my belief that that is a helpful and not necessarily common thing for journalists and people to do to kind of uh, walk people inside of decision-making process about things, including, you know, Camille's decision to take a bunch of Adderall and come out guns firing <laughs> when he comes off the plane from Hong Kong yeah. and all that. And so I, uh, you know, people tried to characterize this as like we hid behind a, 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 a paywall to talk smack about Miriam Elder. No, we have a, a, a Patreon and please go do subscribe. Mm-hmm. And part of what that Patreon is, is navel gazing at our own stuff, at our own process, yeah. making fun of ourselves, talking about our stupid personal life, things that are a little bit more in the weeds. Um, and 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 I will absolutely defend uh, talking about, you know, transparently talking about what we do and the decisions we make and, and why we get there. And and to see 100 journalists um, who, uh, you know, they're apparent they're supposed to be in the transparency business, right? React to this as if it was an act of anti-transparency mm-hmm. somehow. Mm-hmm. Um well, it's, just they, also, they also should be in the business of actually knowing what they're talking about because they're, they're journalists and maybe take the time to, to listen to it and listen to the thing the whole way through. And I think one of the things I haven't re-listened to any of it, but I, I think one of the things that we did talk about was that I floated the idea to myself that, you know, maybe I backed off, too, because I like Miriam. I mean, my opinion is changing because I'm completely baffled as to why any of this happened. If it was one person doing this, fine. Um, but the fact that all of the cabal of uh, of these people, of friends, that of journalists, of blue check marks, and et cetera, jumping in and like people that I like and respect, and I just like, why are you liking tweets if you haven't listened to the broadcast and if you haven't listened to the Patreon, et cetera, et cetera? But you know, I mean, there were a million things that I found very distasteful about the whole way of approaching it. I mean, obviously, I don't think that we did anything wrong. And to be totally frank, I wouldn't have done anything different. I just, I don't think that there's any controversy beyond the fact that we criticize someone when we did actually discuss it. Um, and I think it's probably a pretty fringe view that within the confines of the people who are defending, I think it's totally normal mm-hmm. to say that, you know, all men are sexist or, you know, 
uh, or whatever that, that, that Bernie is a, a sexist. Or, mm -hmm. I don't think that's a mainstream view, and I don't think that that if that was a you know publicly polled on that, people would not be on our side. I, do, I think that's just pretty pretty obviously true. But um, so we discussed that and we got into it. So when Matt and I are sitting at the table talking, we talking about ideas, and I, apparently, um, if we're going to talk about this in the future. She has to be there every time we talk about it. Well, no, um, we're, we're, we're not going to play by that rule, um, regardless. I find of, the of whole thing, I honestly, I cannot stress yeah. enough how odd it doesn't I find sense. the whole thing in the vehemence and the, like, I mean, I got a direct message from one journalist who's, you know, I, I didn't ask for them to do that and I didn't grant them anonymity, but I will. Mm -hmm. But it was like, you know, as a woman and as a friend of Miriam's, like what you did was disgusting. And I'm it's like, crazy. And I'm just like, I don't even know. How, how shortly after I don't the, know. that tweet thread went up, did you get that direct message? Uh, about f f 10 minutes. It's <laughs> incredible. Yeah. I mean, maybe she That's didn't incredible. listen to it beforehand. Could but be she's a Patreon subscriber. I doubt I, it. I, I know we she would isn't. know. But it's also that I had sent that to Miriam a few hours previously. So there's no way that she also listens. Right. But it's like, I, I know that you're going to trust your friends. I get, I get that. But um, when they're publicly impugning the, you know, motives and reputation of somebody like referring to them as, as being like a misogynist or something, mm -hmm. I just don't even know. Um, there's one bit of information that I kind of, I haven't said to anyone and I haven't said to you guys, but I'm going to kind of reveal here and I'll give it a pause so we can maybe cut it out if we want to. And that's entirely, up to uh, up to you guys, but during when I, I, we pulled back from that argument in the in the because it was getting it was about to get heated, um, there was a message that came across my, my screen from um, you know someone paying attention and listening and in in, in, we have people here said you know you could just say Anthony Fisher well I don't want to say that said you know it made a point that you know it is said look you know a couple guys in here and you're yelling at it maybe back off because you don't want to feel like you know, you guys are just like steamrolling a woman and just beating up on this woman's like two guys doing this and maybe it's a bad look. So I, I think it's funny that on the one end, it was like that could have been perceived as sexist if we went in hard. And that was a consideration. That was a thought that 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 went through uh, some heads. And then um, you don't do it. And it's it's sexist. I mean, there's really just no way of winning. I mean, mm -hmm. because because the motivation seem should be for anyone who knows us and anybody who listens to this podcast that we do take on a lot of ideas that, that, that are kind of be controversial or debate them or whatever. And, and if anyone thinks that I am not like I am a pushover to guess and then talk behind their back, I haven't listened to the show mm -hmm. because there's been times when I've not only not been a pushover, but yeah. I've, you know, I've, probably had to calm down more than i i did or, or i've had to curtail it in the in the edit a little bit uh, yeah i mean yeah. there's been times when it's just been like really <laughs> but like no that's bullshit and you're being an asshole and you know one of the things that i floated um and you know this is an interrogating yourself thing on the patreon was that maybe because i do respect her and i do i've, I've had dinner with her i think once and come come into contact maybe i did take it easy um, because I had respect for mm -hmm. her, not because I was afraid of, uh, of somebody, um, that was, that was like, you know, a strong woman. I don't, I don't remember. I didn't read half the tweets. Yeah. Um, but I, I thought one of the most remarkable things and remarkable looking now at who this person was uh, saying, um, immediately saying, I'm so sorry you're going through this. Mm. I mean, we're just debating on the podcast and then talking about that debate later and maybe having a few more ideas when we thought about it a little more. Um, Cause people made us think about it a little more. Yeah. They, they sent us a lot of uh, emails. I think part of the criticism is also that you were too jovial. 
you're enjoying the conversation too much, making jokes while you while you went about having this conversation. That was a criticism? Yeah. Oh, maybe they should listen to the podcast and realize that's what we do in every fucking conversation we have. Uh, one oh one last yeah. point that I'll uh, make. Yeah. Uh, the beginning of her, uh, uh, her, of her thread, um, she said that she was, uh, that the listeners are very passionate and that she mm-hmm. expressed some kind of uh, either surprise or, you know, uh, a gratitude that the listeners were actually pretty kind to her on, on Twitter. Uh-huh. They, did, they didn't get up in her grill. And for, which we encouraged during the episode. And I would just and I like, wish that that encouragement had gone. I, w- I would ways. just like to re-encourage that because one or two mm-hmm. people uh, who are our listeners and we, we treasure all of you um, want to get in there and start like throwing uh, big haymakers yeah. and things like that. Be cool. Be civil, please. If, if you're if you're out there defending us in any way or just like responding, engaging with what we do or engaging with guests. Um, uh, you know, we don't we don't want to participate in Twitter pylons. No, even. which is why, by the way, which is why we didn't. Um, Camille's a different person, but uh, this is why we <laughs> I didn't, so I didn't I, participate in a pylon. But I no, I do. I do no, feel no. a responsibility to use the advantages of my melanin force field and my general <laughs> disregard for like the, yeah. the the prevailing norms. I don't feel the least bit cowed when I'm yeah. confronted by someone who believes that the rules that they ought to operate under are ones that determine that they have all of the control and that they're allowed to unleash allegations and recriminations and they don't have to substantiate them and they can't be challenged because you are what I say you are by virtue of my gender or my identity status and there's nothing you can do about it. Those are the rules. And I reject that wholeheartedly and I always have. And the the notion that we can't say that now because we've had that previous conversation is just absurd. But more than that, I I do want to say one thing. The goal here isn't to extend this much further, but it it did feel like it was worth commenting on. And I'm genuinely disappointed that the whole ordeal with Miriam sort of went in the direction it did. I don't think we have an obligation to apologize for anything. I, I wasn't involved in any of the recordings, but I listened to all of them subsequently, and it all seems fine and above board to me. Maybe I'm inclined to agree with you guys, of course, but I do wish it had gone differently. I think we do try to cultivate an environment when we have people in the room where we can have respectful, earnest disagreement and arrive at something that's like useful, perhaps not any sort of broad agreement Maybe not even any greater meaningful understanding amongst the people in the room, but I think those conversations are generally profitable to listeners. Um, And we have lots of listeners who listen to us and disagree. Um, We also have lots of listeners who aren't men. And I think there were a couple of insinuations that were made um, in the thread where Miriam laid out her charges against the podcast collectively um, where it was insinuated that only men were outraged and we had to calm down our male listeners and various other things. And I, I just don't think they're, I don't think they're honest and I don't suspect Miriam would want to come back. And I don't even know, I haven't pulled the room. I would, I would gladly sit down and talk to her for an extended period and hash out this stuff. I don't have to. And I would be happy to do that shit without any microphones on. If that were something that made, made us more comfortable, I would love the notion that, some idiotic Twitter conflict like ended in something that didn't require us to regard the other reasonable person under other circumstances as a a total monster and a troll and someone who isn't, who doesn't deserve uh, respect. Cause I I, I don't think it has to be that way. I agree. But I do think it was some bullshit. 
to, it, it to was, sort of throw look, that to throw that the, out. The there. one thing I mean, that pushed it is, for, as much as she's she's aggravated and hurt. I was I was aggravated and hurt when I saw that because I don't like people coming after my my guys. Well, I mean, so, think of it this way: is that I, I, I'm I think that's all perfectly reasonable, and I I generally agree. And I think that the thing that made made it, and I think this is indicative of of a really negative, nasty. Um, and let's be fair, intellectually lazy trend these days that in a conversation in which I was saying, I don't think there was evidence to suggest in any way that Bernie Sanders is a sexist. At the end of that debate, I ended up being called a sexist. And I don't know how that happened. And so the introduction into that and the gender element of like, if you want to listen to men, you know, talking for two hours, I'll send you the link to their the paid pay only podcast like you know i mean i don't know what that has to do with anything it's just two friends talking and we do this show together and i don't think that has any bearing on the conversation so the implication if you want to say that i'm a sexist which is hilarious and if, if you want to say that then you know marshal some evidence and, and don't just throw that charge around that was the thing that disappointed me most and i thought it was an incredibly cheap uh, way of uh, of going about it. And one other thing, final thing I'll say is that I r- was reminded not too long ago, um, well, when this was all happening, of an episode that we did with Tim Snyder from Yale, mm. who wrote a book called About Tyranny, um, in which he was saying that we're, you know, trundling down the path that the Germans uh, traveled down in ni- 1932 and 33. And I couldn't believe how much I disagreed with him. And I was a real big fan. And much like Miriam, I respected his work before. And um, I'd read Bloodlands, I thought it was a great book, but we had him for a very limited amount of time. I think we had him for 20 minutes or something. And right after, and I think this is in the podcast, I haven't gone back and listened to it. I know we talked about it. I don't know if you cut it later, but I said to you, and you'll mm-hmm. remember this, I said, we shouldn't talk shit about the argument that he there. just made. Oh, it is. Yeah. I said, we shouldn't talk shit about the. He just got the phone. I think that's kind of cheap, you know? Yeah. He only like, gave us like 30 minutes, if yeah, I remember correctly. Yeah, I think it was like 25, 30 minutes, something yeah. like that. And so I am conscious of that and mm-hmm. I would never want to be unfair. So I think that the, the the difference in this case is that it's not that, I mean, we've talked about and gave shit to Tim Snyder many times since, many times since I, it's come up and like that arguments come up and said like, you know, I don't, I don't buy it, but it didn't mean because he got off the phone early that we never talked about him again. I mean, good God. I mean, I, I pointed it out. We don't, that's a bad, that's bad form. You shouldn't do that. Whereas what we do is we do something specifically for our listeners, not for the general public. And we talk to them. They get a way of communicating with us. And we got an overwhelming uh, direction of those emails. And they were sort of randomly chosen, as they always are. And we responded to them. And I, I, there is literally nothing wrong with doing that. To manufacture some sort of crisis out of that. And to manufacture some sort of, you know, identity for us as, you know, women-hating it's, it's absolutely bananas to me. I mean, I just, there's a point at which I don't even know how to engage in a phantom argument. I don't know what to argue with because I tweeted one thing and that was it. Yeah. This is kind of crazy. Well, so anyway, I don't, we don't need to talk about it anymore, yeah. but that was, that did envelop a lot of my week and kind of bum me out. Yeah. Well, so an allegation although, that doesn't require any damn evidence doesn't, doesn't deserve any of my respect no. so far as I'm concerned. Although so. Moynihan, you did run into a fifth column fan in Orlando. Yes, I did. Yeah. Yes, I did. Uh, my daughter, I uh, was at a, uh, a gymnastics tournament um, which she placed uh, second out of all the girls. So, yeah, hey. an overall score. Mm. Neck full of medals, mm. five categories, five medals. So you grounded her. 
I, Indefinitely. I told, I, well, I let her out of the cage for about 20 minutes yeah. to eat. To That's eat. below the yeah. standard. It's, well, it's usually five, but, but you know. Yeah. So a uh, guy checking the ticket, um, well, actually, I went in and came out to get a beer. Yeah. And I had to check back in, and the guy was like, uh, it was like, hey, he said to me, he's like, you you look like Mike. He's like, oh, you, you're Michael Moyer. And I said, yeah, yeah. And he's like, oh, he was a fifth column fan and a red eye fan. Yeah. And oh, a bunch wow. of other stuff. And uh, he was incredibly nice and um, and held up the line people trying to get in to, to have a quick chat. And uh, I went, was planning on going back and looking for him, but it was, it was chaos on the way out. But, yeah. but thanks for that. It was really appreciated. And, and, and he, I don't think he thinks I'm a sexist. Yeah. I had a, a I don't know why it's me. He, it was, it was nobody in particular. It could have been you too, Matt. It was a yeah. sexist. Both of us, I guess. No, they're, you're both sexist. There's no doubt. Well, all men are sexist. Oh, actually that's true. Yeah. Don't forget the rules. So, all yeah. men are sexist. Yeah. Women are the people who get to determine whether or not something is sexist based on their feelings. Well, you know, we talked about that in the Patreon thing, which I yeah. don't want to reiterate, but you should go and listen it's to enough. it. It's enough. Those go are the rules. Shut up. Go and listen to the banned book. Um, <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I ran into at least two uh, Fifth Column fans in unexpected places over the course of the last couple of weeks. Hong Kong? nice. Um, I did deliberately meet with a Fifth Column fan for oh, drinks. Oh, cool. So it was very nice. Would have been more, but it, my schedule was just a little insane. And... I am planning to release, I have a little over two hours of a contemporaneous audio recording of myself during the, the time I was in Hong Kong. I need to reduce it down a little bit to make it digestible, but that'll be on the Patreon at some point. But I'll tell you that... The- One more thing quickly, we have another, I recorded, oh. I recorded something too, Oh yeah, an author right. thing, um, um, and that's going to be coming out soon because I got two messages today mm-hmm. uh, via Patreon and said, what's going on guys, slacking yeah, yeah. a little bit. Mm-hmm. So well, that'll, that'll be early to, early to Patreon and then it'll yeah, make its way exactly. to the Exactly, so to about three, three things yeah. um, coming soon. Yeah, um, but about my time in Hong Kong, since you asked, nobody did, but I'll tell yeah, you, I'll did. tell you a little bit. Right. Um, we, we shot a bunch of stuff. I was there for, on the ground for, I think nine or 10 days. Um, and there was only one day where we had like just one scheduled interview. Um, and every other day it was like three to four different conversations that we were having with people generally on various parts of the, the Island, um, or territory. It's a little hard to know what to call Hong Kong. It's a city, but it's also this special administrative region of China. It's bizarre. Um, it's wonderful to be able to sink into something for that long um, and the the amount of things that you can learn about a place once you're willing to allow yourself to be surprised and to abandon your priors as you sort of arrive at some new information um, is just like really fascinating and wonderful. The first time I was in Hong Kong was back in 2013, and I believe around that time, um, Joshua Wong, who uh, is has that, that great Netflix doc- uh, documentary um, about himself, who um, helped to inspire a lot of, or at least set in motion, a lot of the current protests with some student-led demonstrations that he was doing at the time was like handing out leaflets and doing stuff in front of like the central building back when I was there in 2013. I barely noticed it. I remember seeing protesters. There were a couple of cops around. Um, but for the most part, the most memorable thing about Hong Kong, and this isn't to say anything about how boring Hong Kong is, it was, it was a great trip and I loved it. Um, was the pancakes I had at the, uh, the upper house, which I went back and had this time. Second shot. Almost every single day. Oh, really? Um, yeah, every single day that I was there. And the two things Crew must have loved about you. Hong Kong that I think are worth mentioning. Um, Hong Kong is um, uh, a place that, for the most part, 
is still pretty normal. When you're there on Monday, it's just fucking Monday. People get up and they go to work and it's, it, it feels normal. It felt a lot like I remembered it. When you walk around, you will occasionally encounter graffiti. More than that, you'll encounter places where graffiti was and someone tried to cover it over, but you can tell what was there or they smear it and you can still see the words like freedom and weird smudged out spray paint. So that's, that's a thing that you'll encounter. Um, there are other things you'll encounter, too, that will remind you that there is this undercurrent of unrest that's there below the surface. But oftentimes it's still pretty normal. Um, so that is a bit surprising for anyone who is only capturing, capturing glimpses of Hong Kong through the lens of like Western media, because we tend to go there and focus on like the dumpster fires and the brutal interactions between the fights, really, between demonstrators and police. Um, uh, and actually three things. The protest movement is is ostensibly about sort of suffrage and pro-democracy and the five demands, if you've heard them laid out. Um, but the motivating factor for the whole thing is police misconduct and specifically police abuse of citizens. And Hong Kongers have this deep, important relationship with their police department and have long revered the Hong Kong police force. And I think um, it, it has been it, it was internationally respected for a number of years after overcoming a great deal of corruption. Um, and that is no longer the case. And most people greet that with a great deal of disappointment, but it's also the thing that I think has brought millions of people out into the street. And it's the thing that was uniformly mentioned by everyone I interacted with. And the third thing is that Hong Kong is a proto-police state. Like it is today, as normal as it seems, despite the fact that there are protests that are happening, you know, on a regular clip, uh, people are afraid. They're afraid to speak openly and honestly about the stuff that they're encountering um, and the the way in which it's a police state is actually important and strange and it's unsettling once you start to realize it before i knew it was a police state before i was willing to sort of say that out loud like i found myself sort of falling into the self-censorship regime as well being a little concerned about the stuff i would write on twitter and i probably overly so but in either case but the but the clearest demonstration of it is the fact that in hong kong today you can be tried for inciting people to incite people to public disturbance. Oh, man. Now, the public disturbance claim on its own is just, well, what does that mean exactly? Disturbing the peace is- What is that? Classic. What That's is the it? the name of one of uh, Václav Havel's uh, long-form interviews. Yeah. And, under, it, and uh, inciting comments. someone to incite someone to public disturbance is, I retweet Fisher's tweet about a demonstration that's going to take place on Sunday- yeah. The demonstration could be legal, but if you attend that demonstration and something pops off and the police decide, uh-uh, this is over, everyone who is there is in violation of the law, potentially, and could be picked up and arrested. And they have done mass arrests at demonstrations like these. And if you're arrested during one of these mass arrests at a demonstration that was legal but is now not legal, you go to prison, they book you, and they'll eventually let you go because they can only hold you for 48 hours. But you've got this thing pending over your head. And because the Hong Kong judicial system is so fucked up and backwards now, you could be waiting for those charges to be adjudicated for years. And while we were there, that inciting to incite people to public disturbance, people were being charged with that. They got charged in 2014. They were being prosecuted in 2019. So oh. you're waiting years for this to happen. And while you're waiting, you can't leave the country, various other things, wow. all kinds of restrictions on you, and you're out on bail. And half of the people who find themselves in this bizarre limbo 
are under the age of 18. It, it's, wow. I'm saying half. We, we, we don't really know, but the presumption is somewhere around half. And if by chance you get into trouble again, and by trouble I mean you're walking down the street and you just happen to choose the wrong street, and there's one of these spontaneous demonstrations that takes place, you could get swept up again in another police action. And if you're swept up again and you, and you get new charges, your bail is revoked and you can go to prison with no trial for fuck all. Yeah. Fuck all. And this is Hong Kong. And Hong Kong is a place where they've, they've never had democracy, et cetera, et cetera. But they have had a set of rights that are consistent with what most people in the Western world would consider like freedom. And they had an expectation that those rights would be protected. Um, and since 1997, they have been slowly whittled away by the CCP. Um, and people there appreciate just how dark things could get at any point. They're not waiting for the 50 years to expire that was promised to them. They understand that their lives are changing now. And it's, it's amazing to imagine yourself living in a place like that. And by amazing, I mean just dark and disturbing. Um, but it also fills you with hope that so many people are willing to, to push back against that. So we're making a longer form piece about it. And I think in the short run, I can tease this, and it may be newsworthy. We did find a member of the Hong Kong police force, um, and he's actually um, – he, he, he has some status in the force. He's responsible for one of the teams that would be out um, at a protest or at least trying to keep protesters in line. And he's talked to us for a little over an hour. Um, and he had to do it with a mask on and all that other stuff because he's still on the force. Um, and he had some interesting, important and often very critical things to say about the police force. And I think there are a few people who are associated with the Hong Kong police force who've been willing to do that. That'll probably come out first. Um, the other thing, the full feature that'll be coming out probably in May or so. Or cool. Yeah. I March, mean, yeah. April, something like that. That was much longer than I expected. So, no, no it, it, if I can ask one question is that, you know, cause I talked to you a little bit while you were there. Yeah. What was the, the kind of presumption or the idea that you had when you went to Hong Kong that was slightly dislodged by your experiences mm. in Hong Kong? Um, that this was principally about uh, getting the right to vote. The, the, the pro-democracy label that we've given to the demonstrators was an apt description of what they were interested in obtaining. Um, and I also just generally expected to find a much more excited climate when I got there. Because, you know, you've seen these violent demonstrations in the street. I expected to see a lot more ruin, so to speak. I mean, you imagine a demonstration where two million New Yorkers find their ways into the streets. And even if you don't like that number, if you think that's overestimated, a million New Yorkers are in the streets and their violence breaks out. And the police are in a, in a real heated confrontation with thousands of these protesters. You would expect to see the, the, the after effects of that. And Hong Kong has had sort of sustained protests for a period of like seven months. It's been less so recently, but seven months. Um, oftentimes really big demonstrations and the level of, of upset there is very controlled and it has a lot to do, I suspect, with the culture, but also a very distinct relationship between the citizens and the, the people who govern Hong Kong and a history of protest that is unique to Hong Kong, where this is the principal mechanism for citizens of Hong Kong to communicate their concerns to the government. And in the past, it's worked 
enormously effectively. And even now, they're still managing to get certain things done, which is surprising Mm -hmm. because they're up against what is almost certainly the second most powerful country, perhaps in the history of the world. China, China is an enormous military power and an yeah. enormous economic power. Um, and this tiny city is challenging. Yeah, them. I mean, that's, that's the, the military power is, is important because, I mean, the number of times you've seen this in particularly like Latin American countries, that there is a tipping point on the streets in which, you know, members of the army you see defecting and mm-hmm. like holding their rifles up and walking over. And that's usually in a concerted and, and coordinated thing. The PLA is, is, is not something that you can do that with, mm-hmm. particularly when you're in Hong Kong, rather large and powerful organization. You can't flip the army like that when you're in this kind of sequestered area like Hong Kong. But I think it's really interesting um, that if you go to an authoritarian country, it does rewire you in a way that, you know, it's when it no longer, is theoretical mm-hmm. and like we've had many conversations about this of that you know being punk rock in america mm. um and you know fuck you ronald reagan like reagan youth and those like bands and stuff from dc like you know going to cuba and saying like oh no no if you start playing we're going to arrest you and you're not going to sell your family and you're gonna disappear for a long time is that is everything being that arbitrary is why these protests don't often work mm-hmm. because you need that level of heroism from so many people that can risk the that arbitrary arrest yeah and it's always looming and you know i mean i mean hong kong's a special example and i'm really looking forward to the piece you guys produce i mean the crew you went with is great i know um uh some of them and you know it's such a special little place from chris Patton walking away in what 1996 was it 96 and and you know, living in that kind of relative calm for so long, and it was only a matter of time between before the Chinese, you know, put the boot heel on the neck of anybody who wanted to be sort the, of relatively independent. The red Chinese. The red Chinese. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's so funny. Do you remember the New York Sun? Mm-hmm. They uh, uh, edited by a guy named Seth Lipsky, who was started in 2002 or three, 2002 or three. Um, which, you know, employed a very young Ben Smith, a young Harry Siegel, um, um, uh, people I think like tweets hating us um, <laughs> in the last week. Almost uh, led to me starting a newspaper in L.A. Yeah. Eli, Eli Lake, too. Uh, Eli Lake, a lot of people at that paper, but their headlines, they used to refer to it as the Red Chinese. And Seth Lipsky would uh, would say, no, you can only refer to it as uh, Red China and not China in the headline. And you go back and look at them, they're hilarious. It's great. So anyway. I endorse that. Yeah. So maybe we should get into the shits. Uh, the impeachment is ongoing. I've been told that it's day nine. Feels like day 5,000, despite the fact that I know no one in this room has watched all of the proceedings. I'm not sure if you've watched any of the proceedings. Uh, as, I've, as I've heard, one, soap operas are still a thing. I didn't know that. Um, and the networks that have displaced their soap operas mm-hmm. for impeachment coverage have suffered a significant ratings hit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've even seen reports that the gallery that allows people to observe these proceedings it's been has empty. been less than full. Yeah. People do not seem to care. They don't care. About this very consequential matter. And it is, it is consequential when the president of the United States might be uh, taken out of office. So that's going on. Uh, the Democratic primaries are continuing. Things are getting heated. Bernie Sanders is apparently at the top of the pack. Uh, yeah. At least in some of the more recent polling. And Iowa is yeah. right around the corner. Michael Moynihan is headed to Iowa. Tonight, yeah. Um, so we should probably talk about both of those. So things. if you're in Iowa, by the way, and you hear this, I'll be... I'll be uh, Lurking around. No, I'll be darting around the state, but <laughs> yeah. being, being Des Moines, too. 
Um, but you know, it's funny. Dave Chappelle also in Iowa. Dave right Chappelle now, stumping uh, for tried to talk, tried, tried to get him through um, a, a mutual friend actually, yeah. and uh, that wasn't possible because mm. he did that uh, last night. And it was funny. And during that, you can find the clip on 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 Twitter. Mm-hmm. Somebody asked Dave Chappelle about. Um, the Chinese jokes and like the impressions and stuff. Andrew Yang um, loves them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he absolutely and loves them. He does. It's his and, favorite comedian. Yeah. And he was like, and Dave Chappelle is like, you know, people are always looking for an offense and everything. And it was like a fun, a funny answer. Gosh. But um, to the Elizabeth Warren thing, it, it, it's interesting because the, the whole uh, conversation that started that time waster of last week on Twitter was about that gambit. Um, of, uh, of saying that Bernie Sanders is a, you know, Bobby Riggs-like sexist, uh, seems to have backfired because, I mean, her numbers have tanked since then. Uh, that's correlation, not causation. But, you know, both in in um, in uh, Iowa and in New Hampshire, um, she dropped significantly and Bernie, Bernie Sanders took a commanding lead. And one of the things that I assume we'll get to too is the, is the dreaded Joe Rogan endorsement of Bernie Sanders, which if you've listened to Joe Rogan is no surprise to anyone. And, uh, which, uh, um, again, the completely pointless, um, morons of Twitter who live in a universe that nobody else lives in was like, you have to disavow this, um, uh, uh endorsement from one of the largest, Talk show. I would even say largest television shows because people watch his his uh, uh, show on, on on YouTube. One of the largest shows in the country, oftentimes the largest show, the most popular show in America on iTunes and presumably in the world at times too. And he should disavow that uh, because Jorgen is apparently um, I don't know a, a, a fascist. I saw one person calling him a fascist, which of course always leads to the question: If Joe so Rogan stupid. is a fascist and a Nazi, what do you call Richard Spencer? A super fascist, a super <laughs> Nazi? I mean, come on now, these are in the same category. The, the precision of language would be nice here, but uh, yeah. So that that didn't seem to have had the effect that uh, Elizabeth Warren and her team had hoped. It's a it demonstrably. Um uh, it, it correlated with a sharp uh, change of fortunes at the time um, that uh, she uh, her her campaign leaked this information. It was January 13th, I believe. Uh, and the debate was either that night or the next night. Right. The were the, the non handshake. And this mm-hmm. is all everyone was talking about at that moment. You can go to 538 um, has uh, a great list of running polls and. Uh, as part of it, you can go down and it has the, you know, the, the, the day by day chart numbers and you can like go back and see what the national yeah. polls were on January 12th. Uh, and at that moment, uh, I think Bernie had a, two, uh, a lead over Elizabeth Warren of 2.4 percentage points. And the last time I looked at it, which was about one week ago, uh, right when the Joe Rogan, knows, Rogan news hit, um, that had increased to five point something. He doubled the size of his yeah. lead. I mean, you look and it's, it's striking on the graph suddenly like, you know, and Elizabeth Warren was leading Bernie Sanders for months up until, mm-hmm. uh, up until October from June to October, pretty much she, and it's, a, and it's amazing uh, up until that point she'd run, I think um, uh, by any kind of measurement, the most impressive campaign, right? She was, everyone was polling at six point, whatever percent one year ago. And she was one of them, you know, Beto O'Rourke was probably out polling her at that point. Um, so she emerged from that steadily, 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 super energetic, right? She was getting crowds. She was running. She was being all Kate McKinnon on Saturday Night Live, uh, policy papers for this, got a plan for it. She survived 
whatever uh, gaffes that were associated or whatever explanations that she had about her Native American heritage. It just didn't seem to be hitting her. And she was just like and you saw her on a debate stage. And for the most part, um, she was just kind of way more impressive, certainly than Joe Biden, oftentimes the, than Bernie. So she had been doing great up until that point. Stumbles in beginning in October, having to uh, uh, ironically having to try to kind of put numbers on her Medicare for all plan. She <laughs> takes the brunt of it. Bernie takes none, uh-huh. even though Bernie literally like yesterday with someone's like, how much is it going to cost? Like, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Whatever. Yeah. Was uh, it on ABC or something like that? Yeah. That clip? Uh, but like he's he said something along those lines for a while now, mm-hmm. which makes it, it it's terrifying and it also makes sense because utopia is always much more preferable yeah, yeah. to purists and young people, whereas sort of wonky try to add, add it up kind of utopia uh, is off putting at least for one of Elizabeth Warren's main uh, uh, base, which is political journalists. Well, she, to adore she just, her. When she talks about it, though, especially in that last debate, I mean, she looks like she's being evasive. She's giving you the same robotic answer to the question over and over again. Well, yeah, how much does it cost? Well, as I'm saying, it's my priority is that the rich will pay more and everyone else will save money. Yeah. But how much will it cost? The rich will pay more and everyone else will save money. You, Where, whereas Bernie will just kidding? go, look, we need a revolution <laughs> yeah, in this country. Yeah, yeah, he's like, the reason uh, it's going to cost uh, <laughs> billions and you're paying for it. I mean, it's like, fine. Great. Yeah. I mean, I, I, that's the thing that people get give me a hard time for. It's like, hey, come in a Bernie brother. I'm like, no, I just like the fact that when I watch him next to Elizabeth Warren, yeah. I know exactly what he's saying. Well, it's yeah, totally clear. Yeah. He presumes this is Bernie Sanders saying, I don't know how much it's going to cost. Nobody does. Um, but it should definitely be less than we're going to end up paying under our current system. I mean, uh, maybe. I, 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 yeah. Also, m- m- you're going to pay a lot more in taxes. You yeah. just are. Maybe. Like but you will, but it'll save you money on net. Look, I mean, in, in whether or not that's true, I, I very much doubt yeah, the that last, it is. The last, cons- the last claim is the uh, most dubious. Yeah, but I mean, the thing that he has to go on is the most basic thing that, that most people who are even reasonably informed on this know is the United States spends an enormous amount on health care, more than most advanced industrialized countries, without, you know, universal coverage, right? That is something that really resonates with people. It's like, it's not that we don't spend money, and it's, of course, this conflation always of healthcare and health insurance. I mean, America does have unbelievably good healthcare and just a really screwed up insurance system. And, you know, like that resonates with a lot of people. Like we spend this much already. We spend more than other countries. How come we can't have this? So his argument on that is even on that level, like watch Elizabeth Warren talk about this stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and you get caught in this kind of like, you know, trap. Like, I don't, like half the time, I don't know what she's talking about. She's mm-hmm. trying to dodge questions. And rather than just enumerating this very, this very list of things that like, this is the problem. This is mm-hmm. the problem. I don't know. It's going to cost a lot. And we're going to have to tax people more. It's like, that's a more honest answer to me. It seems like the sort of thing that might actually, and I'm, I'm referring specifically to Elizabeth Warren's presentation. It seems like the sort of thing that might lose you support. That might make people less inclined to vote for you when they have the choice of choosing between a Bernie Sanders who is at least sort of clear and he is stridently revolutionary versus the person who's pretending to be a pragmatist and pushing precisely the same policies well, yes. in a way that just doesn't seem credible, which I think I'm contrasting that with all of these assertions about the role of gender in her flailing failing candidacy for president of the United States. So the, here's a, the, a couple things about that. One is that um, her gambit is that there's a broader ultimate lane for her because it's not just the Bernie left that mm-hmm. she can uh, that she can reach out and appeal to 
different types of pragmatists or centrists or things like that. Like Bernie has his own lane. He can't grow the field. She can. And there's a little bit of evidence that she had been doing that for a while. So that would be the thinking behind it. But I, but I also agree. It's, it's like fundamentally it's more attractive to go for the simpler, uh, you know, more clearly explained utopia. And yes, that was when she started nosediving. And it was definitely the cause of the nosedive. I look at the, um, you know, the private meeting uh, from December 2018 revelation in January 2020 gambit as uh, desperation. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's a Hail Mary. And the, the one where he supposed where Bernie supposedly said that a woman can't win. Yeah. In a private conversation, right. which he disputes, and then she would shake his hand, all this kind of stuff. And I wrote when it happened, um, especially in light of uh, all of the, uh, you know, the Gen X candidates who many of whom had centrists you know, beliefs in the past, all of whom ran as woke candidates, like they're trying to outwoke one another and they all failed. You know, people who should have been better candidates uh, all did pretty badly. Um, and uh, and so at the time that Warren made that gambit, I predicted and it's foolish to predict anything in politics, but like that stuff's not popular. Um, and it certainly has correlated with um, uh, the trend lines increasing. She was already going down, but there was a sort of stasis. Well, the jaw clamp has sort of opened up. Bernie went up. She's gone down <laughs> since then. And seeing people respond uh, again to the Joe Rogan thing, like it was a human rights campaign, like, you know, Bernie must right now disassociate himself. And to be clear, they're disassociating themselves to Joe Rogan, <laughs> who's a comedian and also a, a mixed martial arts uh, announcer guy, I guess, commentator, a yeah, commentator yeah. Mm-hmm. who has made colorful comedian um, uh, statements about like, come on, dude, you know, you can't you, you, you're you going to transition mm-hmm. from uh, a, a man to a woman and then go compete against women and kick all their asses. That's that doesn't make sense. Um, OK, I, he could say that in a way that sounds pretty rude and, and kind of like funny, but that's like a belief that a lot of people have. And is, is that your disqualifier for a guy to be participating in public life? Is mm-hmm. that that's what you need to, to maybe it is for some people, but I don't think that that's a broadly. I don't think you build an yeah, audience of seven million people uh, like that. And so for for and we're going to see this and we've already seen it with the, with the New York Times and, and, uh, and other newspapers. Elizabeth Warren's going to get all the endorsements. Elizabeth Warren and A.B. Klobuchar. <laughs> together. Weirdly. <laughs> sometimes together, which is the weirdest <laughs> yeah. of all. Um, and I think that this is or like, I suspect um, that this is has to do with where journalism is going, which is more. Um, into the areas of what uh, George Packer wrote in a recently really good essay. I think you yes. saw that live, right? Uh, yeah, him, I, th- I um, saw him deliver he, that. He yeah. won the Hitchens Prize and delivered a lecture. And it's kind of a must read. And it's very interestingly polarizing, which reading when I was reading it, I didn't find polarizing in the least, uh, which uh, you know says that uh, I'm, I'm part of the target audience and part of the problem maybe. Um, but he talked about that one of the biggest problems in modern sort of journalism and and writerly life is that people are starting the first thing that they do is look for um, whose team they belong to and can fight for and, and then what thing that is the right thing to believe and then proceed from there. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that you see that a lot in the way that um, journalists both privately or, you know, in their personal way on Twitter and also as expressed, even as things like editorial endorsements and other things are going in that way. They, they are stressing the kind of team identity belonging uh, a group as being a primary thing in politics when I just I, I, I want to see a little bit of evidence that any of that is popular. I think mm-hmm. it's kind of off putting. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I think I think Warren doing this 
actually will be the thing that that ends up dooming her campaign. That's my prediction. And again, that's a stupid make predictions. But well, it's funny, though, because, I mean, we talk and we've talked more in the past probably four years about this than ever before, about the increasing political polarization. And I don't think that that's wrong. But one of the things that we talk about in this sense is like people watching Fox News and people you know, watching MSNBC and Republicans and Democrats sort of retreating to their corners and not doing the Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan thing, which was, you know, largely myth. But, you know, these people coming together. What we don't often talk about is the polarization from the people talking about the polarization. And that's people in the media. And, you know, the, the, the idea like, you know, these conversations that happen to us on Twitter or you see talking about Joe Rogan, like the world is not thinking this way. Nobody cares about this stuff except for these people who are scratching each other's backs and patting each other in the back. You know, like everyone is agreeing with each other inside these journalistic circles. Nobody wants to trespass and any of these things will get them called, you know, an ist and ism or become Joe Rogan, who 98% of America probably thinks is totally sensible, if not a bit liberal on a lot of things. I mean, listen to him talk to, to Tulsi Gabbard and listen to him talk to, to uh, Bernie Sanders. So like that polarization that we often miss is the fact that I think so many people in, in, in journalism these days, and it is these kind of blue check mark people can say the most outrageous things, most outrageous things. And no one will challenge them, right? Because it's on an issue that you probably shouldn't get involved in. Packer talks about this a little bit. It's that what, it's best not to, Best not to. Don't defend your friends when they get attacked. I mean, no, I didn't have anyone whose friends of mine come and say anything on, on Twitter backing me up. It's good, not, you know? good that we're not friends. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm specifically, I specifically talking about you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you're a co-host. Um, no, but like, I mean, you don't want to wade into these things where someone's being called these these horrible names, which are debate ending names, right? It's not, they're not arguments in any way. And of course, what, you know, the thing that we talked about at the beginning of the show, no one engaged in any of the arguments that we made. It was just, you know, all by implication and don't get into that. So Joe Rogan, clearly he's a transphobe, a homophobe. Sex. I don't know what the hell he was being called, essentially a fascist. And all of this stuff just don't bother. Like Andrew Yang, I think is getting the endorsement of Dave Chappelle and gets a lot of interest from people that are not you know, kind of centrist because he's like said, screw you to this stuff. He's kind of like, yeah, I don't care about this stuff. And that's what I think is intriguing about him. Not, you know, his UBI stuff. I mean, that, that kind of polarization was like, if you're not part, if you don't have these views, then you're a bad person. We're going to call you a bad person, particularly if you engage in a debate about these views. So it's best not. So try not to. And everybody in this room knows not to don't, I mean, why would you bother? Because it's not going to to win you any friends. It's only going to create a record online of totally unhinged people calling you completely crazy names that nobody in that would adjudicate this or normal people would ever think that you actually believe. But it doesn't matter as long as this little kind of, you know, group of people that control the narrative. And, and But that narrative disappears the second you get out into the country. Then everyone scratches their head and says, how did Donald Trump get elected? <laughs> this is an absolute, absolutely baffling to me. And then they spend years and, and thousands of dollars trying to f- figure out how that happened. Anthony Fisher just sent me something, a news story from CNBC. And in the news story, uh, people said, oh, the headline is misleading, et cetera. So I clicked on 
The source, and the source is a Elizabeth Warren press release. Mm-hmm. I'll give you a great example of this. The headline on the CNBC story is, Elizabeth Warren, Matt, you're going to love this, proposes criminal penalties for spreading disinformation online. Now, is that phony? Well, let's go to her actual uh, actual um, press release. No, no, no. She's not talking about prosecuting people. No, mm-hmm. no, no. Mm-hmm. She's talking about prosecuting companies mm-hmm. th- th- that are made up of people that are making decisions that they might go to jail for. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's all this stuff. Like Russia had so much control over your brain in the last election that unless people control this, we are going to punish them in courts of law. That is not something I think that anybody thinks about beyond, you know, um, you know, Luis Minch and, you know, people that are, are, are hyperventilating about this stuff on MSNBC. Sasha Baron Cohen. Well, yeah, I mean, exactly. <laughs> people that just have no sort of sense of what's going on in the real world. And if you're saying, because what you're essentially saying, it's a version of what Donald Trump said. I mean, remember the famous thing that Donald Trump said, I could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue. My wouldn't have any effect on my poll numbers. And of course... It's an insult to his voters and not um, a praise of himself. He's saying they're so stupid and the rest of it. You bring this out to the, con- uh, the, the country and Elizabeth Warren saying, you rubes are too fucking stupid to realize that you're being lied to on Facebook. So therefore, we have to protect you for being because you're so dumb and prosecute people who are rich in Silicon Valley. Bad rich guys. You people were trying to protect. It's like, I don't think this is a winning proposition. And it shows you, in, in, in my estimation, how totally divorced this campaign is from from the sort of ordinary people that they're trying to appeal to. Yeah, the um, the fact that it, all Democrats take as a as a given that Citizens United has to be overturned, uh, which, again, the, the Citizens United was a case about whether you can broadcast a critical documentary about a presidential candidate before an election. Yeah. Uh, the law, McCain-Feingold said you couldn't, and the Supreme Court overruled it on First Amendment grounds. So, like, you want to keep banning political documentaries before an election? Okay. Um, but know that that's what you're doing. Um, but the uh, the underlying theory behind this, and I was at a, a dinner uh, in uh, in uh, in New York a week or two ago, included a guy who was a very, very senior muckety muck at, at one point at both Facebook and Twitter. And we we're having a conversation about the way that people on specifically MSNBC, but in general, um, talk about the role of Twitter in the election. I mean, we were passing around between us. Uh, on our uh, chat, and we're probably going to jump the gun on somebody who wrote this, but Sasha Baron Cohen <laughs> earlier today um, r- tweeted this. It's amazing. Um, I'll read it to you. Terrifying. 218,000 political ads on oh Facebook, many filled with lies, seen by 1.3 billion, all capitalized. FB refused to fact check and take politicians' money. Hashtag Mark Zuckerberg. History will judge you if we still have independent historians after you destroy democracy. <laughs> I feel like I don't know him anymore. Yeah. Um, oh, God. I uh, just got a message that Doris Kearns Goodwin was arrested at LaGuardia <laughs> Airport. I, I didn't expect to laugh at the end of that because when I first read it, it made me so upset. But it is it is it's it's funny. It's insane. Because it's, like, it's, a, it's a dope pretending to be a smart person. It almost seems like parody. But he's totally serious. Totally serious. Uh, so in talking with the uh, Facebook guy, and it's like it's that and it's what we've talked about on this program. And some of our listeners and some of our guests have pushed back on on our generalized take of that. Hey, look, when people talk about these things, it's really drops in the bucket um, technologically. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the two hundred and eighteen thousand political ads on mm-hmm. Facebook, mm-hmm. many 
filled with lies. Okay. <laughs> millions, uh, millions of impressions. It, it's uh, funny that the number was millions. so specific and then it just said many. <laughs> from specific to non-specific but very quickly. The, I, don't, I don't know if I've ever seen a political ad that wasn't filled with something that someone might describe as a lie. And, yes. and like, are they, <laughs> yeah, being, are they being fact-checked down at like the local NBC affiliate? Hell sure. no. Yeah, but they, no. sh- but they should. That's I'm, what we need. We need uh, a general inspector. Perhaps this should be a federal level position and they will decide Someone's gonna have to which do it, ads we right? get to see. Andrew Yang kind of had that. I know. And he's since quietly dropped yeah. that. Yeah. Um, it's, he didn't oh, make a good. big thing about it, but it's no longer on his website. I think that's my favorite thing about the Andrew Yang campaign. With the exception of his universal basic income, which might be his worst idea, um, it's the only thing that's non-negotiable. Everything else about that campaign, he just kind of drops or sort of manufactures True. along the way. Hey, that sounds like a good idea. I'm going to add it to my platform. I love that. That's, like my, the, that's the best part of him. Source <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, By the way, the, 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 um, Elizabeth Warren, um, to the Twitter thing, to what Matt was saying, the, the press release says that um, one expert uh, estimated that during the 2016 election, there was a, quote, one-to-one ratio of junk news to professional news. What? So? Uh, okay. <laughs> so, That's yeah. science. Well, well, what, what are people reading? None of it, for the most part. <laughs> yeah. The headlines. I mean, they're, they're, they're either apathetic, you know, fatties, oh like, God. on their rascal scooters, or they're just reading all this fake information all the time. But you click on the source... And this is the actual sentence. There was a one-to-one ratio of junk news to professional news shared by voters over Twitter. I guess we assume they're voters. In other words, mm-hmm. now this is the this is where it gets interesting. In other words, for every link to a story produced by a professional news organization, there was one link to content that was, and here's the important part, mm. extremist, sensationalist, mm. conspiratorial, mm. or other form of junk news. And who's determining that? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I think so, a lot of stuff is conspiratorial and sensationalist. Where, where did they put the Covington coverage when that, when that came Ooh. out? But, what but, what but, category did that well, come in? Well, you know, the irony... The of, racist 16-year-old kid, you could tell by his smirk. But, but the, <laughs> the irony of this is, is Elizabeth Warren, under these rules, maybe should be prosecuted. Because I could make a fairly good argument that this is sensationalist, right? And so they're saying, well, this is sensationalist stuff, and it was one-to-one, and that's the stuff that needs to be be rooted out. Well, I look at the actual data, and I'm like, well, that's pretty sensationalist for the purposes of winning a campaign. Maybe we should arrest Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> it comes back to you at the end. Headline, sexist Moynihan oh, calls for arrest of God. Elizabeth Warren again. God. Although the, the, I think the this, push, by the way, the is the only way here. I want, I want, like, all candidates in the next election cycle to be men, only because I won't be called a sexist for criticizing them. You know, I'll just be called an asshole. Push That's a cr- joke, people. <laughs> Push to create cr- civil and criminal penalties for knowingly disseminating false information about when and how to vote in U.S. elections. If, if that were the only place where she was interested in instituting civil criminal penalties, would, would polling the room, would you all think, oh, that's fine. That should probably be fine. We should probably outlaw the ability of a Matt Welch to post, make sure to get out and vote on Wednesday. No. no, no, yeah, agreed. I love uh, my favorite. Uh, <laughs> my favorite day of the election season is Super Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> Shit, wait a second. What was the day again? Yeah. Although, and, what Iowa caucuses are on a Monday. Uh, yeah, that's but that's a, that's people that's, in a room going to a corner and then like debating and then going to the center of the basketball gym. That's not democracy. <laughs> that's just <laughs> that's just total madness. So yeah, Nevada's on a Saturday too. Yeah, Nevada's on a Saturday. Yeah. Uh, Iowa's so white, Michael. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know. Um, yeah, that, that's, was a, a, a story that I saw multiple times today before going to Iowa and looking at what people are talking about. And it is of course that 
it is um, the first state and it's unrepresentative and it's too white and we shouldn't do this um, because, you know, it was so, you know, disorienting to people in the past that on our past two presidencies of um, President Cruz and President Huckabee, it was like, you know, <laughs> thank God that we started in this place that was the bellwether. There's even if you go back and look at it, uh, there's an argument that Ron Paul won the Iowa caucus. There was really, really close. It was like and I forget I even forget if it's 2008 or 2012. That's how full of cheese my brain is. But it was uh, I think it was the year Huckabee won. Um, mm -hmm. They were all around 21 or 22. And since the Iowa caucuses are, are really strange, the yeah. way that they counted it up, there's like endless legal proceedings. And and I think for a hot second, like several months later, like, oh, yeah, by the way, Ron Paul won Iowa. Um, but by then it was kind of like too too late for anyone to care. So, so in, the in the non-incumbent, yeah. uh, uh, like Republicans, for instance, uh, Iowa caucus uh, from 1980, uh, George H.W. Bush won in 1980. Uh, 1988, Bob Dole won. Um, Bob Dole very narrowly won in 2006. Um, and then, you know, uh, George Bush, but then it's, uh, Mike Huckabee, Rick Santorum and Ted Cruz. I mean, okay. Like, why are we even going to Iowa? What is the purpose of this? It's a good question. I, I don't think there is a purpose to it. And it's also kind of difficult this year because the, the festival for journalists, the, um, um, uh, election uh, campaign schedule calendar, um, is squashed and it's, it's unclear, like, uh, whether it makes sense even to, um, be as focused on Iowa and New Hampshire when you have early Super Tuesdays happening and stuff. And, and uh, I think people, and people always think that they're fighting the last election and they're not. Uh, and they discover that a little bit too late. One thing I, I want to just quickly tie in, uh, talking about Elizabeth Warren and Facebook and Russia and crap <laughs> and Sasha Baron Cohen, because it relates to impeachment just for a, a tiny second, which is the weakest part of the Democrats case. And I think the Democrats did better. Uh, the House managers, uh, Adam Schiff, did better than I expected to the extent that I watched. Um, but the absolute weakest part is when they would go back there, um, like the excuse that Adam Schiff had for rushing um, the articles of impeachment before trying to get a uh, court ruling on whether John Bolton could testify, for example, which is you know certainly in the news right now, um, was like, well, we had to do this before the election because they're going to cheat the election again. And it's like, that, that, yeah. I understand that Trump invited Russia to hack um, stupid Democrats, and they did, and it helped Trump um, materially, um, and certainly so discord in the Democratic race, and that you're mad about that, but there's still like the baseline belief from so many people that that was the cause of Trump winning the election, which I just think is not supported um, at all, and and it's taken as a given, and that depends on a on a, a broad belief that people are really really stupid, that they're sheep, and that they can be um, they can be. Uh, manipulated by, you know, nefarious Russian hackers to change the way that they would otherwise vote. And I, I think in addition to being probably wrong, um, which is a problem enough, um, it's also, I think, kind of demonstrably off-putting to the people that you're ostensibly trying to win an election with. You're trying to get their vote. They're calling you dumb. You know, it, it's not it's not it, it's it, and it strikes me self-evidently yeah. uh, 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 cell phone. And historically, the solution to, to educating voters or, or guiding voters who you don't think are educated enough to make their own decisions is, is not a good historical. The record is, is, is a bit spotty, I should say. I mean, you can look back in recent history of countries and governments that have tried to do that and use that as a justification for all sorts of um, kind of authoritarian and totalitarian Kind of instincts. No advertisements before elections. Well, you know, I mean, it's, it, you know, the, the, what I've seen is like, look, 
there are, I would say this, I think this is a kind of maybe something that people would disagree with it. You can be really well informed and be informed in a very odd way. So like last night I watched an episode of Lou Dobbs and I ripped the show on from YouTube and I put it into premiere and I cut it into a minute and 45 seconds of my favorite bits of the episode because I'd never seen it before. And it was so bananas. And particularly watching it, I was like, wow. You know, I looked on Twitter, too. It did not take these people who I think are well informed on impeachment. They know what's going on. They know who the House managers are. They know who Adam Schiff is. They know the charges that are laid out. And they have turned on in one day, John Bolton, from conservative hero (laughs) to complete, you know, lefty liberal tool. Yeah. Tool of the radical Dems is what uh, is what uh, the the mouth breathing Lou Dobbs said. Um, You know, I think the people who believe that stuff and are just in the Amen Choir are pretty informed. They're pretty, they don't want to be informed in a way that, that, you know, goes up against their predetermined narrative. And so, yeah, like John Bolton, like you can find Lou Dobbs two months ago when Bolton resigned or was fired, depending on who you believe, saying that he's the greatest American and, you know, he served Trump well, et cetera, et cetera. And these people change on a dime. I mean, when I'm watching the Lou Dobbs thing, I'm like, okay, so what part of this should be prosecuted? for knowingly distributing fake information. There was a bit about Javelin, the uh, literary agency that's uh, <laughs> run by Matt Latimer um, and Keith Urban, who's a, mm-hmm. you know, not the singer. Um, Keith is a friend of mine. I've known him although, for, for Although years. he may be able to hold a note. Too. He probably can. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. They say, you know, the connections of John Bolton to James Comey. And there's a chart. Oh, I saw that chart. And, and the amazing thing, I was the only one that pointed this out. I don't know why it wasn't, it wasn't noticed by anyone, probably because it was so crazy that no one thought it, to, to, to look or believe it. There was a, there was a, in the middle, it's a javelin. And then there was a spoke that came out, Comey. And the other one, Bolton, the same, represented by the same people. So Bolton is tainted by Comey. What Lou Dobbs didn't mention that he's also represented by Javelin (laughs) and apparently is also tainted by James Comey. And it's like that is he knows that that's knowingly excluding information. Maybe we should put him on a docket (laughs) or we could just shame him on Twitter for being a being a psychopathic blowhard. I think you just (laughs) talked me into backing Elizabeth Warren. I know. (laughs) Watching that show is the closest I ever got. Frog March Lou once Um, and for all. So one thing I want to turn our attention to, though, is the rise of Bernie Sanders, who is apparently going to be the Democratic nominee. I'm declaring it right now. It's obviously happening. Um, One, the Bernie surge. I don't know how real it is. But to the extent it is real, um, I would only be so surprised. It's certainly been the case that Joe Biden has been leading throughout. But when we've looked at the polling, and I believe we've discussed this before, like the second choice for everyone is worth paying attention to because most of these people will drop out of the race. In fact, all but one of them will eventually drop out of the race. And the question is, when you've supported Pete Buttigieg, when you've supported Amy Klobuchar or Elizabeth Warren, If they were to drop out of the race tomorrow, where does your support go? And Joe Biden is not the leading person um, in that tier of of second choices for candidates. And that seems pretty important in terms of the vulnerability of the Democratic frontrunner right now. The field is totally crazy and incredibly turbulent, despite the fact that Biden has been leading for some time. Um, But... It isn't so absurd to me that and and it's becoming less increasing, less absurd to me um, that someone like Bernie Sanders could find a way to 
like actually eke this thing out based on the fact that it's just it's very turbulent. He's probably got more re- name recognition than pretty much anyone running except for Joe Biden um, and eventually could end up being the guy, despite the fact that he pisses off the establishment. He's up in the uh, betting markets now. Who? First time. Bernie. Bernie mm. is yeah. up uh, like uh, six percentage points on, yeah. on Joe Biden. Uh, Joe Biden's I polling I don't know, but has I, I don't stayed really at 27 percent nationally the whole time. Bernie has to show that he can win in the South. Mm-hmm. And I, I still have a hard time wrapping my brain around that. But, you know, what the hell? It's been the, the <laughs> yeah. politics has been weird for a while. It, it Joe, Joe Biden today. Was it today? I think it was today when I think it was in Iowa when he was asked um, uh, or he was just maybe speaking extemporaneously. He was on stage and he was like, you know, I'm old. And I'm going to die. And like, I'll pick somebody that's good. And everyone starts laughing. He said, no, I'm serious. <laughs> I was like, man, this guy's really just God. fucking leaning into it, isn't he? Yeah, oh, that was a pretty great man. one. I'm like, this guy. And, and as I, I've said before, like Biden, watching him now is like watching George W. Bush. Like, oh, please don't mess up. Not because I like him. And like, just in the same, not because I like George Bush. It's just like uncomfortable to watch. Yeah. <laughs> to watch like an old man like doddering through, or in George oh. Bush's case, a young man doddering through a speech so, or, or a debate. Yeah. So do you do you suspect that there is any truth to the rumors that do that Barack Obama, like Hillary Clinton, could pipe up to publicly push back against uh, Sanders candidacy? No. Yeah. No, I don't think it, it, it you know, Obama's too clever to, to do that, you know, in such a disruptive way, mm-hmm. particularly with Donald Trump. At well, stake, it's, it's you been know? floated repeatedly. Yeah, yeah, but that's and, how they do and, it. And in other contexts, it did seem a, a bit more like the source of these suggestions might be legitimate more oh, recently. That's, but that's how you do just, it. Folks right? are just echoing yeah. what Obama said. I think that's probably as far yeah. as it goes. That's, that's how you do it. Right. You know, you just say like, say to somebody and it gets into the media and you're, you're happy with that and making uh, people know voters know that you would not be happy with that choice. Yeah. And that's how you exert influence. But as far as like actually involving himself in an internecine battle, I can't see it. Yeah. I want to shout out a little bit to, um, Barack Obama. One is that it, it's funny, like he, the way that he's talked about, uh, like uh, you know where he would land in the Joe Rogan wars. He's on, he's not on the prevailing media side anymore. Like he's he's too anti woke for a lot of people, which is hilarious to imagine. But I think he's he's following the George W. Bush model of ex presidencies. He's kind of isn't. I mean, he's has a you know big media presence. He's doing this and that, but he's not actually getting very involved in politics. Yeah, and that's I don't know, that's good. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I think it's, it's preferable really good. to, um, you know, I think Bill Clinton with the, the, the Clinton Foundation. Initiative and yeah. all that stuff is a little bit too buttons. Yeah, I mean, I like the fact that he's making like documentaries for Netflix. I mean, good for him. You know, I mean, I I, I have more disagreements with the guy than I care to to bring up, and it's not worth anything. But you know, you can't help but like the guy. I mean, I just like I see him on the stump, and I see him in that 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 uh, thing on stage. I think it was at Rutgers in New Jersey when he was talking about the woke stuff, and he was like funny and personable, and like you know, when you've had um, f- almost four years of this guy in the White House, it's just like oh, that's that's nice. It's like opening the door from a stuffy room. You're like oh, that's 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 a nice breeze, <laughs> that breath of fresh air. That I know I see Camille like chewing his lip. He liked that sort of thing. But but yeah, look, I, I, all I'm saying is that and it's nothing political. Literally nothing. I political. understand. I think that the, the guy is a very very good politician mm-hmm. in the same way. Like he's the opposite of Bernie, not even in a sort of ideological way is that the cantankerous thing that Larry David can do an impression of yeah. is uh, his brand and it works well. It's like, oh, Hillary's saying like, people don't like Bernie. Yeah. 
Yeah, and, and Trump didn't Trump say like people don't like you, which I thought was pretty pretty, he's pretty funny job, pretty funny. Um, uh, but like, yeah, yeah, that's the thing. That's the brand. I mean, yeah. Nobody want he doesn't want to be liked. But is but is she right in the main that he would have a very difficult time getting things done because he's God, historically so. never gotten things done. God, I hope so. Yeah. Right. yeah. In which, like in which if case, he wins, then... in which case, to to anyone who shares my sensibilities and who's actually nervous about his program, then perhaps he's not the most frightening candidate or his radical proposals aren't something that should be so unsettling if he were to get elected. And that is a question. I'm not positing that. In fact, the answer I would give to that question is don't bet your life on it. Um, If Bernie were to actually win the possibility of them building some coalitions and pursuing some more modest version of his radical proposals would still lead to pretty profoundly radical outcomes. And there may be consequences to having Bernie Sanders be commander in chief and advocating for those policies, not along sort of practical, pragmatic, political, feasible lines or, you know, economically sensible, but just this is the right thing to do, which I remember, I think it was uh, a, What's the Iowa paper that endorsed Elizabeth Warren? Des Moines Register. Des Moines Register, who said specifically um, that what she wants to do isn't radical, it's right. Medicare Mm. for all isn't radical, it's right. Um, Which is to say that this massive expansion of the federal government that would, what, double the federal budget um, and cost a tremendous amount of money over 10 years, which she, again, just is not willing to publicly talk about how she'll actually pay for it. Um, that this thing is not radical. It's just the right thing to do. But that's a, those two things are not in opposition. They yeah. could, you could potentially be radical. <laughs> I mean, it's the right thing to do, and it's pretty radical. I mean, I don't, yeah. I'm not making a statement on that, but... But, but um, the burning question. Sorry. But, yeah, continue, Matt. Uh, just that presidents have power. And, um, and so uh, when we've lopsided so much power onto the presidency, um, he will have authority to do that. I think it will be hard for him to do a universal... Medicare for uh, every illegal immigrant kind of thing, because um, that ha- that has to pass through Congress. However, um, I think that would be the end of the post World War II trading order, hmm. right? He will. He looks at Donald Trump and basically says, you know, um, the Trump's trade wars aren't enough. Um, and, you know, he's against the redone uh, NAFTA. Uh, he's voted against every single trade agreement that's ever come across uh, mm. his desk when he's in the Senate. And when asked about, would you have supported any previous trade agreement? He had said no, because it's all a race to the bottom, which, of course, is totally fucking illiterate. But um, <laughs> and he and people love him for it. Uh, but that would be it. Uh, the president, as we have seen this current president do, has amazing amounts of power to just say, I, I'm going to use national security mm-hmm. as a reason to crack down on like Canadian trees. Sure. Why not? Um, so Bernie will do all of that and it'll be terrible. The other way that he's going to exercise a lot of power, which I think uh, would likely be uh, less terrible, is that he's a good deal less interventionist on foreign policy. And I think even radically so. That would be really uh, uh, uh surprising to see what he, what he would do there. Like uh, Trump has come in with an anti-interventionist instinct, hasn't in, but like with these weird Jacksonian counter impulses and it hasn't really led to, you know, us getting out of Afghanistan. I think Bernie gets us out of Afghanistan like very, very quickly and, and other places too. Um, and that is, that's a startling change in 
what we've seen before. So in some ways, Wouldn't he would you be a continuation. Would you suspect that Donald Trump might have done that, though? I, if, if actually, anyone was going to disregard the advice of wise counsel, it, it's Donald Trump. And he surrounded himself with a lot of people who, from a foreign policy standpoint, would give him sort of at least some version of establishment advice, um, even because, like a John it's, Bolton. It's because he doesn't, he doesn't believe he it. doesn't achieve that objective. But it's because he doesn't believe it. I mean, I mean, Bernie's not going to hire a John Bolton. Mm-hmm. I mean, John Bolton was hired because he was on Fox News and Trump didn't There's understand also, the difference. Maybe no one else was willing to take the job. Yeah, well, that, yeah. that's also true. And I think that it's hard when we're in it to realize that one of the things that will be most interesting to see if there was a Bernie Sanders presidency um, is that Donald Trump would be gone. Mm. You know, I don't know what happens to to Trumpy Republicans. I presume they stay the same way. But when you have that kind of hate figure revert to the mean. Yeah, well, yeah, maybe. I mean, we'll see. I but so. but I think, think so. they, no, they, no. They, they see it as um, an electoral winner. I mean, it has been for a lot of these guys. But if it loses. Right. And you mm-hmm. have you have Bernie Sanders uh, in the White House. I think a lot of people who would kind of lurch towards Bernie Sanders because they think and see Donald Trump as a crisis of sort of epic and sort of generational importance. And when he's gone, you're left with the guy that was radical that could dislodge Trump and probably do pretty well in a debate against him and things like that. It's like, yeah, he's the guy that'll do it. But what happens when Trump leaves the scene? I mean, is everyone going to be like, oh, okay, this is the, these are the policies we want. This is kind of the, the 55% top marginal tax rate is, yeah, that's cool. We're interested in that. And I don't know. I don't think that that's I think that a lot of people could vote for Bernie Sanders who just don't really agree with Bernie Sanders. Yeah, because they hate Donald Trump more than anything. And also, he doesn't appear to be personally corrupt. You know, Uh, sure, he hasn't worked an honest day in his life except for that week (laughs) and a half on the commune. Yeah. (laughs) Bummed everybody out. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm not picking turnips. (laughs) (laughs) I'm very tired. (laughs) Um, But yeah, he's not enriching his family members and, you know, going playing golf on on, you know, Sanders Country Club. Uh, and he's I don't think he's going to be sicking the institutions of the state on his enemies mm-hmm. um, and just acting in, in this kind of awful clownish way. And so people who will vote against Trump because they don't like that aspect of his personality. Mm-hmm. And I really hope there's a lot of people who will, will vote against Trump because I think that aspect of his personality is terrible and mm-hmm. I don't want a president to have it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know, Camille, you and I maybe disagree a little bit on that. Um, <laughs> when, but, you, when you say it that way, it makes it sound like I'm a fan of authoritarianism. Mm, mm, uh, yeah, it's funny. Um, <laughs> cool. It's nice to talk to you. Uh, <laughs> but like, oh my but God. yeah, this is just to be in, in uh, vigorous agreement with Michael. I think there'll be people who vote for Bernie who really don't have uh, any time for him. But like, mm-hmm. but you know, find him kind of refreshing and funny and Larry Davidy mm-hmm. and not personally corrupt. But this, I think that's going to get us into a seesaw of right populism to left populism yeah. to right populism. And it's just, that's, that's, yeah. that's going to be a nightmare to, to live through. Well, for the record, I'm not a fan of authoritarianism. I didn't say you were. Yeah. It's, it's, the, it's just that you don't place, uh, you, you know, the, what, what's the stupid phrase that you'd love to use? Mm-hmm. It's uh, 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 pub. <laughs> 
respectable politique or whatever, uh, uh, <laughs> some fake Latin that you throw when, <laughs> whenever we like Barack Obama for not being a total respectability uh, for not being a total dickhead. You're um, married to a Frenchwoman, and you don't realize that politique is French. And <laughs> <Latin>. <laughs> <laughs> okay. it's fine. Working in the original yeah. Latin. I mean, I didn't think I didn't think that with you know your extracurricular activities. I mean, you forgot the French. That's <laughs> Matt's been separated for a while. We're doing a Patreon yes, about yes. it. Um, we've asked Emmanuel to be there because we've learned our lesson. <laughs> uh, she's going to be in the room <laughs> too soon. Yeah. Too soon. Um, um, I, <laughs> no, but that, like you, you preference you know actual wars waged by presidents and think that you know we spend too much time uh, worrying about their manners and yeah. too little time worrying about the actual bad deeds that they commit. Which I, I think I, is a good. I also think it's better when uh, a, a president, especially when he gets the the kind of response Donald Trump is getting when he transmits explicitly some of his authoritarian impulses um, as opposed to eventually arriving at him in respectable ways under conditions when, you know, it might be a little bit better received, like the, the freedoms that are gradually eroded away as opposed to the ones that he's like, I don't know, maybe we should just do this dramatic sweeping thing, kind of like an Elizabeth Warren who suggests, you know, what we'll do is we'll, we'll punish certain people for political speech online which is couched in a, well, obviously what we'll do here is we'll protect our elections. We will go after people who are polluting our politics with misinformation that could harm people, that could diminish the power of their vote. All we're doing here is defending our democracy. No, 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 no. That's called political censorship. It's, it's, it is actually censorship of speech and it's bad. And it is a dangerous pathway for you to go down, especially when you're the sort of person who wants to bust up tech companies. It is not impossible to imagine that the very next thing that you'll propose, as Moynihan already highlighted, is some sort of legal prohibition that will give you the right to go after companies who are platforms and publishers. And I think it is better for people to recognize that all of them are potentially dangerous totalitarians and need to be watched carefully. To that point. Unfortunately, that's not the lesson that has been learned here. The lesson that's been learned after the Trump administration um, seems to be we just need to find the right person and then give them as much power as possible so that they can protect us from the dangerous Russians who are going to steal our elections and undermine our democracy. But I think I, I think that the reason why it's one of the reasons why it's come to that unhappy conclusion and mm -hmm. reaction to Trump is that one of your working theories was shown to not work, mm -hmm. which is that by being such a boor. Um, he would uh, awaken people's sense that yeah. we need to defrock the power from the presidency. No. I think actually by being so uh, flagrant uh, and degrading norms and forcing or, you know, encouraging all the people around him to absolutely sully themselves and be clown themselves and adopt his language and become mini Trumps, even though they have nothing to do with him. You know, previously, the Lindsey Graham's of the world, Rand Paul's of the world, all like aping Donald Trump by doing all of that. Um, they have encouraged the left populists to um, just like say, we need to be the ones holding the club of power and we will use it punitively. It, like it's, it's shocking to me, absolutely shocking to see the Democratic reaction to the corruptions of Trump and the abuse of power and, and just the way that, that the, the whole impeachment trial is going on. People are not responding to impeachment itself mm -hmm. as a as a, a time to maybe cut back on the power of the presidency. Mm -hmm. This is in such sharp contrast to Richard Nixon. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, granted, the, the Watergate scandal 
um, came along with much broader scandals about the way that the CIA and the FBI have been running amok <laughs> and have been politicized, not just under Nixon, but under Johnson and Kennedy right, as right. well. And so there was a collective revulsion and there was, you know, Vietnam was was uh, imploding and the best and the bright. A lot of disillusionment happened at once. Yeah. But there was a theory of power um, that was widely uh, uh, held on the right and left, but more so on the left back then. It's like we, we have just given the the right. institutions of power too much of yeah. this stuff. And that's nowhere to be found. It's not it's not in play at all. It's the true. only way that it's in play on the Democratic presidential race so far, and I like it, and I've mentioned this here before, is that at least people are talking about sunsetting authorizations to the use of military force. Like, some, some people. Some people. <laughs> I mean, but most of the people on stage are talking about a variance of that and saying that, you know, Congress needs to be able to assert the war power. That's it. That's it. There's no other yeah. defrocking going on. To so the one previous thing that you said, kind of calling back to the Warren thing, and particularly like post-Trump and, you know, to, to Camille's hope, which, you know, I kind of hope too, but it actually the response was, you know, we need to to um, you know, put more power in the hands of people that are better than him, which is which is the response is that, you know, the, the Elizabeth Warren thing about about, you know, truth. And you, you mentioned this is like we there's all this false stuff. I mean, Trump, of course, is the one that pushes this with fake news. And I said, but it's truth, truth. Right. And it's, it's, it's the first time in my life I've ever longed for postmodernism is that there is no truth. It's like there is a truth and we can determine it. And I'm, I'm not comparing the United States under this government or under whatever the next government is to the most horrid totalitarian regimes in history. But be skeptical of that <laughs> word, right? Always be skeptical of that word. The mm -hmm. second you hear truth... Just, you know, I mean, I don't want to, it sounds like you're quoting Herman Goering. It was like, reach for your pistol. When I hear the word culture, I reach for my pistol. When you read truth, just be, you know, gird yourself. I mean, what is one of the, the government agencies in 1984? The Ministry of Truth. Where does that come from? The Soviet newspaper, Pravda. What does Pravda mean in, in Russian? Truth. I mean, look at Der Sturmer, which was the most anti-Semitic uh, paper uh, in probably in, in modern history. Um, easily in modern history, and the the subtitle of that was a a newspaper for the the battle for truth, for the German newspaper for battle of truth, and it's always inserted in there. If someone's promising you the truth, start being very skeptical. And the the, the you know the weapon that you use in this battle against the Russians and blah 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 is um, skepticism, right? I mean, why are we not teaching more skepticism? And in, in, instead saying we need more people to be skeptical on your behalf rather than you being skeptical yourself, because the way Russians did this in the past and different information in the past could not be disaggregated from the truth. Right. Stories we planted typically in like Indian newspapers, newspapers that were were fellow traveling and then they would be cycled back into the English language press. But, you know, typically like The Guardian took a lot of this. Manchester Guardian took a lot of this stuff, as I've often talked about the Matrokin archive that shows how this disinformation spread. And there was no way of checking it. We're in a situation now that if this stuff comes from the the Internet, uh, what was it? What's it called? The Internet something, something. That, research group? Yeah, research group. Mm -hmm. um, the agency. I, yeah. If, if it, it comes... Internet Research Agency? Yeah, IRA. Oh, we can... We can right. If it comes from the IRA, <laughs> up, up the raw yeah. to you, Irish listeners. Um, but if it comes from... We've been able to trace this stuff, right? It took the, the closing, the opening of the Soviet archives, very briefly, they closed them very quickly after it, to find out stuff that was fake. It was very well constructed by the Russians and by, this, by this, the Soviet uh, propaganda crews and by the KGB and the GRU, et cetera. 
we found this uh, stuff out fairly quickly. I mean, you look at that indictment of the people breaking into the to the DNC servers, and you, it's amazing how we track them. It's unbelievable. It's so impressive, and we can we can unravel the stuff fairly quickly. So, an awareness of it is a good start. Whereas in the past, you could not. You could not figure this stuff out. You would have debates about this st- stuff forever. I mean, you have debates about like the Zimmerman telegram being real or not real that probably still go on to this day. This doesn't happen now. We can actually figure this stuff out fairly quickly. It's not foolproof, but you can, right? So this is not the time to abandon the way that we did this in the past when it was more difficult to figure out what was true and what wasn't true and to say, oh, well, we need uh, some legislation. We need criminal uh, uh, liability. We need punishment. Um, we need judicial review. We need an, a czar of something to import a Russian word there. Maybe a Bolshevik is what we need. But it's insane at this point to, to say that the thing that we should do is not to just teach more skepticism and is is to is to punish the people that we don't like for other things. By the way, that's not a coincidence that, oh, we don't like Mark Zuckerberg for a million other reasons. And, oh, we're going to see if we can haul him in front of a court for letting a, a, a Russian propaganda story that nobody believed in the first place slip by. I mean, it's always the people that they, they just kind of don't like in, in, the, in the first place. So, you know, truth. Oh, man, we all love truth, don't we? Who's truth? I'm sorry to, to be postponed about it, but, you know, at this point, can, can we just, when we hear that word, we're going to disseminate the truth because you're not being told the truth to just say, well, just give me everything and let me, let me, let me kind of sift through it. And let's remember that Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders both wrote a letter to the FCC urging them to consider pulling the broadcast license of Sinclair News Group based on their politics. Mm-hmm. That's just sen- I mean, censoriousness. Yeah. I mean, it sounds pretty totalitarian to me. I'm just and, saying. I, I wear it on your sleeve. Well, if you want to have a have a fun little thing that will take take up a lot of your time, but nobody reports on, there was an independent newspaper in Nicaragua in the eighties called La Prensa, owned by the Chamorro family, which was constantly shut down by by the Sandinista government, uh, which had a sister city with Burlington, Vermont, and and, and obviously Bernie was a big supporter of that government. Um, you can go back, and the man who is in his full. This is very similar to Donald Trump. I mean, that's they have a very similar thing in this. The media, the media, the media is that it was a manufacturing consent kind of Chomsky way of looking at it. But he hated the media, the corporate media. And um, try, try to find him being critical or even I think at times maybe even defending the shutting down of of La Prensa, which um, my favorite quote of all time. And I'm doing this from the top of my head, so I might be wrong. There was a, a woman named Nelba Blandon, who was the information or propaganda minister for the government in Nicaragua. And it was questioned by a Western journalist and said, why on earth did you shut down this independent newspaper, uh, La Prensa? And she responded by saying, well, they were printing lies about us and we couldn't let that happen. So we had to shut them down. So, you know, I mean, that's that, that was, <laughs> they were defended by by a lot of people who, who now are 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 um, pre- pretty interested in, in the truth in independent journalism. So we're pretty much out of time because we need to wrap up. Oh, I got to go to the airport. Um, We have like five minutes, which is totally appropriate because that's all you need to discuss the impeachment of the president of the United States. Um, It is. I think it's still likely that this is going absolutely nowhere. The the Bolton revelations are only so revelatory. Um, The notion that John Bolton had a private meeting with the president where he blurts out something along the lines of, I'm not giving them the money until... They do these investigations. I totally believe it completely sounds like the president. Maybe it's not true, but I don't care because I think there's enough of a convincing and compelling circumstantial case as there has been to suggest that that is precisely what was going on here. 
And it's Does anyone not believe that, that? Re- re- Republicans at least say they don't believe it, although they're making this like five pointed defense of the president, which is he didn't do the joint. But even if he did do it, it's not illegal. And it, I mean, even if it was, he gave him the money. So it doesn't there's nothing to see here. Right. He just gave him the money. So it's fine. Um, I guess I said five point and I only gave you four things. There. No. And, and also uh, something, something, something. Uh, exactly. Adam Schiff uh, is a jerk. Oh, yeah. Well, he, he's true. definitely that. Um Perhaps one of the reasons why, I'll just posit this, you guys can respond or not, and we can get the hell out of here. Perhaps one of the reasons why this is so anticlimactic is because Democrats have been promising to impeach the president of the United States since he was inaugurated. And quite frankly, even before that, they were going to go after him and they were going to get him. And I'm not saying that they manufactured a a story here. They didn't have to. The president did that for them. And he has been wounding himself since he took office, finding ways to make himself vulnerable to criticism and attack by both hiring stupid people and doing stupid things (laughs) all along the way. Um, That said, well, yeah, I'll leave it at that so you guys can respond. And then I do have one thing before we head out because I wanted to commend um, Eli Lake's um, latest piece to, to everyone listening. I'll just add that I don't uh, I want to see John Bolton testify because we're, if we're going to have an impeachment, have an impeachment. And he was a witness to something. And yeah. the uh, House case didn't have direct witnesses to the things. Mm-hmm. He is the direct witness to the thing. And I don't understand. Uh, so he says, I don't understand uh, the argument that many people make or the two kind of semi connected arguments that people make um, who say, oh, yeah, totally fine that uh, Russia and WikiLeaks did the dump on the DNC because it's information. We want news. We want information. We, it's, you know, it was true. Um, you know, it was actual leaks of actual emails that were written. And so it's really, so it's good. It's better to on net to have more information. And yeah, we should definitely not have John Bolton testify in an impeachment trial. It's like you're either pro information mm-hmm. or you're not um, on, on stuff that matters and pro disclosure uh, in unorthodox ways or disclosure in Ways that are kind of normal and prescribed in the Constitution, if un, if unusually done, um, he has material uh, relevance to the case. Put him up there. I mean, I, I will confess to wanting to see the theater because we know John Bolton a little bit, and it's kind of funny. Um, but also, he's just a witness. I don't, I don't, I don't see how you wrap your brain around an intellectual defense for not having a relevant witness testify. And I think a lot of people are embarrassing themselves, whether they feel that sense of embarrassment or not, uh, by uh, com- manufacturing reasons to not want him to do so. Everyone's full of shit. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing that we always take away from this podcast is that, that that Matt's point is a very, very good one of this desire for information until you no longer desire that information because it's damaging to you. And, you know, particularly on somebody that you've claimed is heroic for years and, and defended. I mean, you can find a lot of these people saying the most incredibly generous things about John Bolton. It's not as if it's some sort of Democratic witness uh, that that has been a member of, of, of the Democratic Party for a long time going there to impugn your motives. I think John Bolton is probably the most reliable witness. And I say that for one reason, is that John Bolton is a guy who believes it. That's the thing about John Bolton. You know this very well, Matt. You know this very well, Camille, of, you know, having him on the show that you guys did is that he buys, he's into it. He's like fully rock ribbed, never been. He's like a Bernie Sanders, but on foreign policy, <laughs> but on a much more aggressive foreign policy, shall we say? Yeah. 
he is offended that Donald Trump cows to dictators. And we saw this today that there was some evidence that he had said to who was it? Uh, I think it was some uh, somebody house. I can't remember who it was, but he had, he had reportedly said in September, like in late September, yeah. that um, I fear that, that Donald Trump is, you know, trading uh, favors or, or or cozying up to people like Erdogan. That offends John Bolton's sensibilities. If you dislike the way John Bolton goes about sort of rectifying these problems in the world, as I do, I think it's completely crazy and wrong. I don't actually question the fact that he really, truly believes in it. He's dedicated his life to it. And when Donald Trump is like, you know, cozying up to to, to Kim Jong-un, for instance, that offends him. So I, I think that he is somebody who truly believed something and got in there and tried to do it and was prevented from doing it and is now just like, hey, you know, this is what happened. That's the first thing. The second thing about this, by the way, is Donald Trump has to realize and his his surrogates have to realize, like, you know, it's really cool about Donald Trump. He just goes and says, fuck you to people. It's like, yeah, that's pretty cool if you're not a politician. Right. Because there are consequences to that. And these idiots never realize it. Right. They're like, yeah, it's real backstabby. It's like, do you see what your president does to people who, who cross him from his own party, from his own inner circle? And then, you know, what he does says to the intelligence community when they say something he doesn't like and goes out and defames them. And, you know, they might get back at you because I know Donald Trump would. That's what he does to ambassadors who supposedly won't hang his picture, which we have no evidence of whatsoever. He just makes it up off the top <laughs> of his head. I'm going to get back at you because of X, Y, and Z. So we're going to have you fired. And sometimes people do that to you. You're not immune from that because of the president. And John Bolton is doing that. Mm -hmm. And he's doing that because you did what you shouldn't have done. Mm -hmm. You should make nice with people on the way out. If they have nude photos of you, make sure to be like, hey, we're cool, right? You know, but, you know, because they're going to release the shit that's bad. Mm -hmm. And that's what is happening here. And, and, and to the final point, to, the, to, to what you're saying, Camille, of like, oh, it's, you know, don't hire bad people and don't do stupid things if they're looking to impeach you. Um, Republicans have a lot of nerve in this, particularly when, when Ken Starr is Donald Trump's attorney, mm -hmm. is that the, the madness that, that Bill Clinton created in Republicans during those years, which I remember very well from the American Spectator and the Arkansas Project, read Byron York's piece in, in The Atlantic about the, the rise and fall of the American Spectator, and R Richard Mellon Scaife and this desperation to get rid of him. And uh, that's exactly what motivated uh, the impeachment of Bill Clinton. They just got more than they ever hoped for. They were like, holy crap, we got all this stuff. And that's what politics is about. And, you know, to again quote, to, to talk about Tip O'Neill, like politics ain't beanbag. You know, if you don't want to get impeached, don't do things that trespass on impeachment. It's pretty straightforward. I, I, and in this this special pleading here of like, I cannot believe this is happening to this president. It's like this president would do that to anybody who crossed him if he could. And he tries to. And he's just bad at it. And, and we're seeing that now. Like Amen. It. That's good. Um, <clears throat> Eli Lake had a great piece. I believe it was published at Commentary rather than Bloomberg. Not sure why, but it doesn't matter. Um, worth reading. It is a, a very lengthy but completely worthwhile exposition uh, about the, the challenges facing uh, the country with respect to the, the conduct of its uh, FBI. And it's actually a really interesting retrospective on the whole thing. The, the Trump-Mueller investigation, Russia collusion investigation. And it's not in any way, shape or form a defense of Donald Trump. It doesn't matter whether you are critical of the president and think he's the most awful person ever who ought to be impeached or you think he's the best thing since sliced bread. The concern uh, about how we got here um, and the various deficiencies 
that that led to a really expensive and and rather pointless um, examination of the president and the proliferation of completely sensational and just really like indefensibly stupid uh, conspiracy theories um, about the president working with Russia um, that could have been challenged at the time and probably should have been knocked down in a lot more context. Um, I think the way that we got to there uh, is really important and worth contemplating. And uh, I think Eli did a marvelous job of it. So commending to you something that someone who's not an idiot, at least on this particular topic, Eli, <laughs> wrote. Um, so you should go read that. Uh, anybody got anything else before we punch out of here? Idiots have written many things. We covered a lot yeah, of them. We did. We did. Indeed. That, yeah. was, that was amazing. Yeah. yeah. I, um, yeah, if if I if if some, I probably tweeted some stuff. <laughs> I mean, I got a quick one just because oh, no. it's, it's sort of on topic, and I just shared it with you guys. Sarah Rayo, remember her? Kind mm-hmm. of. She, she she ran for Congress, I believe, at one point out of Colorado. And okay. Her basic shtick is calling everybody racist to to to, to well, com- comical effect, like yeah. almost. Yeah. Uh, so the latest one is reminder that private messages of support is another form of white supremacy. Make Sorry? it public or keep it yourself. Keep what? It, keep it to yourself. What? It doesn't matter, Camille. You just her her comedy feed is <laughs> one of my favorite things. I have for a long time just presumed that it what? was a joke. This one popped out at me though. I yeah, think yeah. This one's especially like I think I just want to text her like privately, which is white supremacy, <laughs> and say like I think you're it's a little over the top. You dial it back, and people start believing you again. Is there no context for that whatsoever? Probably someone sent her a message of support. <laughs> <laughs> and the poor person's like, oh, oh my God, I just was trying oh to be nice. Oh my gosh. I'm it's so like a, sorry this is happening to you. There's a, a piece. I'm getting that tattooed on my shoulder blade. Oh, yeah, so here's the context. White Americans' unwillingness to talk about their own racism is a big reason we are where we are today. Oscars so white, concentration camps, American dirt, police brutality, the Democratic primary. We yeah. have to have the conversation. Elections aren't a panacea. Concentration so she, camps. She may have gotten some uh, messages <laughs> and of support. Oscars so white. Well, Keep uh, those things in mind. I just want to say pretty that, much the that, same. And um, American dirt is a novel. Yeah. Well, it's a problem. Yeah, yeah. Whatever it is, it's a damn problem. Read up on that because it's one of the most insane things I've ever seen in my life, the American Dirt thing. But, um, uh, oh, actually, that's I'll say that's the somebody who wrote this for me is that this woman wrote a novel, but um, apparently she's not, you know, Mexican-American enough to have written this novel about a migrant or something. Mm. And I think she actually is Puerto Rican, maybe. She is Hispanic in some way. But she's, uh, Oprah named it her her book, um, and then, noted white supremacist Oprah. Winter. Yes, yes, because she sent you a private message, and uh, <laughs> then wish. and then uh, and then uh, everyone was like, "You can't write this, and this is horrible." A person from the community should have written this like eight hundred page novel you've been working on for ten years. And the woman, of course, because this is what you do in the Rubichef darkness at noon era that we're in, kind of like apologized and said, "Maybe I shouldn't have written this book that I spent ten years writing." But there was um, a, a, a person who tweeted something. And uh, I was happy to see when I retweeted it that that um, with a comment that it, it was people from the left and the right and all over um, liking and, and, and retweeting it themselves. But a woman, I think she was for an entertainment weekly or something, um, tweeted out a screenshot of Selma Hayek, uh, the actress um, who had previously said, check out this book, American Dirt. It's Oprah's thing. It's about, uh, you know, Mexican-American. And of course, the 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 locust descended, and uh, and she she uh, posted something on like Instagram apologizing, saying, "Oh, sorry, I didn't know that the person wasn't sufficiently the same as the character that she was writing about." <laughs> and uh, this person tweeted and was like, "You know, I want to uh, commend uh, Selma Hayek for uh, for correcting her view," which I was like, "Oh my God, that is the verb right there, correcting your view." 
And I was like, it's just like some young person. Like, this is like a crazy totalitarian mindset of that. This whole debate is bonkers, totally bonkers. And you want to read good stuff about it, read Lionel Shriver, who is a novelist, a great novelist, and who's written extensively about this idea that if you could only write about what you are, she would only write about being a, a bored middle-aged woman who stays at home uh, with her cats um, and not sort of imagine, you know, these these novelistic things that, that, that are her, her profession, right? And so um, that is the attack on the book, is that you have to be the thing that you're writing about. Um, I don't know if I could write about, like, a 15th century German, because I'm not a 15th century German, nor am I German, but I think maybe it's a skin color thing. I'm not sure. They're canceling uh, bookstore appearances. Yes, uh, uh, around around uh, California. But cancel culture isn't real. <laughs> um, speaking of which, uh, I commend to people to read. Uh, Douglas Murray had a, an essay in The Spectator U.S. Um, that kind of talked about talks about um, pylons and, and you know, uh, outrage mobs online and things like that. And uh, it's just a, kind of a nice little um, exhortation to. Um, like, how does one respond when, you know, when you by getting involved, you're immediately going to invite abuse upon yourself? Like, how do you pick and choose? And his rubric was just like, start with if you see people um, telling lies in public about someone, you know, um, who you like or is your friend. Um, but you the, they're telling very easily provable lies. That's a good time to step in somewhere and say, hey. Um, that's not accurate and that can have a difference and also be a bit of a, of a pat in the back of the people that you were defending. Uh, because, you know, a lot of those people in the moment when they're in the barrel, um, feel, uh, kind of lonely. I think you should, you should do it even, even more when it's, it's somebody you dislike. I agree. But like start you know, yeah. baby steps. Yeah. yeah. I didn't read it, but I just saw it. Just if you want to reference it, it was called defend your friends. I saw it uh, mm-hmm. circulating, yeah. so, but I haven't read it yet. So I yeah. anyway, okay. Um, well, we should get the hell out of here. Uh, one more idiot who wrote something, and at least this is idiotic. I don't know David Hogg. I do not follow the things oh that he God. tweets. Um, and it doesn't matter what you think about gun reform. It's important to note that this is completely ahistorical. It makes absolutely no sense. He tweeted some days ago, and it's still there. It currently has 577 retweets and 3.6 thousand likes. This is a tweet for the founders of the gun violence prevention movement started centuries ago by almost entirely black, brown, and indigenous LGBTQ women and non-binary people that never got on the news or in most history books on the news. On the news. Hundreds of years ago. Hundreds of years ago. Um, We may not know all your names, but thank you. This is total... You don't even have to say it. It's so... Yeah. General Gage, outside, there's a... She's a non-binary people. I don't know what that means, but there's a non-binary oh people saying, give up the gun. What do we do, sir? Oh, my gosh. Oh, it's just 1758, this before is the battles of Lexington and Concord. false. How do you come up with shit like that? And Harry, they, made, they just made a movie about Harriet Tubman where she's packing heat the whole time. Nominated for Best Actress. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I haven't seen that film. Me I haven't seen a lot of films. I did see 1917, which I think I talked about before. It's fucking spectacular. I gotta go go watch that. it. Bye. 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 We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan horse.